0: If you have a Bible, would you please turn in it to Matthew chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 3. I'd like to read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2 and then in chapter 3. I'd like to read from verse 13 through to verse 17. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, there was another Bethlehem about seven miles away from Jerusalem. For so it has been written by the prophet And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Anywhere up to two years prior to this event. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Today, and in the next few days across the Christian world, the festival of Epiphany will be marked by millions of followers of Jesus. It is, for many, the official end of Christmas or Christmastide. Although not for all, Davy, you would be pleased with this, as some Christians continue to celebrate Christmas all the way through until another Christian festival called Candlemas, on the 2nd of February, which marks the presentation of Jesus in the temple. There are pitfalls and there are benefits of following a kind of liturgical year. I don't follow one closely. If you do, you can end up being religiously formal, going through the, um, the outer appearance of remembering certain moments in the life and the birth and the death of Jesus. If you're not careful, you can become overly familiar with this story. It's also one of the reasons I think we must be careful about how we approach communion. In a tradition like this one, where you take it every week, you can end up taking it because that's what you do, rather than stopping and saying, why am I eating this bread? And why am I drinking this juice? And what does this mean to me? So powerfully demonstrated to us this morning by our sister's Beautiful prayer. We can end up becoming dead and religious and doing things for the sake of it. But there are also possibilities in marking the liturgical year and allowing ourselves to be shaped by the life and example of Jesus in a slightly deeper way. By remembering something like Epiphany, and I'll explain why I want to talk to you about that this morning for a moment, in a moment we are rooting ourselves in a different story. We're rooting ourselves in the deeper version of the way things really are. We're allowing our compass center to be rooted in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus and to let him sit at the center of our priorities, our thinking, our hopes, our dreams, and our self-understanding. I'm not going to ask you How many of you got to Boxing Day and said, right, let's get these decorations down. Christmas is over. Christmas is over on Boxing Day for consumers. It has only just begun for believers. And you might think that I'm being a prude or a bore or a pain or that I'm Scrooge, crinkling up my nose and saying bah humbug at all of you. I'm not doing any of those things. I want to encourage you to allow yourself to be rooted in a Christian Christmas, which begins on Christmas Day and goes all the way until today. Now, some of you will be aghast to know that our decorations are still up in our house. How many of you have taken your decorations down? A moment to admit it. How many of you have not taken your decorations down? Ah! I knew you wouldn't have, and I knew you wouldn't have. There's a very formal reason for why we don't take our decorations down until today. It is that the consumer Christmas tells you that it's all about the gifts and the presents and the moment and getting it out of the way and getting into the new year so that you're ready to start for work. But what if we allowed ourselves, instead of letting Christmas to start in November or the beginning of December, what if we actually allowed the 12 days after Christmas to be days that we remembered the whole message? Some of you have had a fantastic Christmas. Some of you have had a terrible Christmas. A Christmas where everything went wrong in your family. A Christmas where you're facing uncertainty. There are families in our church, I don't need to name them, who are worried about their children's well-being for the next 12 months. Christmas wasn't the same this year as any other year. But if we allow ourselves to stop and allow each day of Christmas to root itself in us in a different way, we discover something different about this message. The incarnation brings with it a message of hope to those that are in despair, comfort to those that are in mourning, faith to those that are afraid, courage to those that are shaking in their boots. The 12 days after the birth of Jesus remind us of God's grace and mercy and compassion in a whole range of different characters, from Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Joseph, the mother, the father of Jesus, to other people in the biblical narrative and the story and saints through history. We're reminded that the incarnation is something that changes everything about us, everything for us. And epiphany marks an end of that season. To allow Christmas to run until today, or indeed, if you go to the 2nd of February for 40 days, which is a Christian tradition that mirrors the Lent period before Easter, is to allow this story to become more than two or three days or two or three services in our Christian lives. It's to allow it to take root in us and allow its implications to grow in us and to come back to it every year. I'm sure you know that the Advent season in the Christmas calendar is the beginning of the year. Our life doesn't begin on the 1st of January, our story begins. 40 days before Jesus's um, birth, as we reflect on his first coming and we wait on his second coming. We root ourselves in a different rhythm, at least we're supposed to. Not the rhythm of presents and gifts and rushing and turkey and tinsel and trees and lights, all of which I love, by the way. We root ourselves in his arrival and his re-engagement when he returns for permanently and visibly for all the world to see. We root ourselves in the life of God when we root ourselves in some of these cycles. And I want to take a moment this morning to encourage you to do that today. There are a number of aspects of the life of the Lord Jesus that are remembered on Epiphany. Two in particular. The baptism by John which we read in Matthew chapter 3, and the arrival of the Magi, or the wise men, which we read from Matthew chapter 2. And it strikes me that together today, on the first Sunday of the new year, you and I could do no better than be reminded of the need to keep God at the center of our lives by reflecting on the ways in which God has epiphanied himself to us. The word means revealed, or appeared. And in these two stories, we read of the appearance, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ to John the Baptist and to the wise men. The word epiphany comes from a Greek word. It doesn't matter what it is for the sake of this morning, but it, it's used in three significant ways in ancient texts. The most important for our purposes is the appearance of a deity to its worshipers. There are two others though. One is the appearance of the dawn after the night. And the second is the appearance of an army which is too great to be defeated. On our epiphany today, on this day when we look into 2019 and we reflect on 2018 and we prepare ourselves for all that lies ahead, I want to invite you to open your heart to the God who has appeared to you. To the God who has revealed himself to you uniquely and fully in Jesus Christ. Not some kind of phantom, not some kind of idea, not some kind of notion, but to God himself. And to the God who breaks the night with the dawn of his light. And the God who comes with an army that no one can defeat With strength that is stronger than anything that you will ever face. That's the God that I want you to reflect on with me for a few moments this morning as you step into 2019. The John that appeared to the wise men, the 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 God that appeared to the wise men, the God that appeared to John the Baptist, and the God that appears to you and to me. And I want to do so by asking you to consider just a few examples from each of these stories, four in total that can help you to set your compass in 2019 the first one is very simple read with me again matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 2 in the time of king herod after jesus was born in bethlehem of judea wise men from the east came to jerusalem asking where is the child who has been born king of the jews for we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage I want to invite you to let wisdom lead you to Christ in 2019. Not to an idea, not to a concept, not to a religion, not to a service, not to a tradition, not to a pattern, but to Christ. If you were one of these wise men, probably people that had been left behind in Persia during the um, Babylonian captivity hundreds of years before, a number of the Jewish people that had gone in the captivity of um, 570, 580 BC, when given the option to return to Jerusalem, decided to stay there. Some of them became known as the Magi. They were wise men and, and women that um, engaged in reading um, some parts of scriptural texts and looking into all kinds of weird ideas. And it appears that a number of them, traditionally three, but there's no evidence for that at all, a number of them, around about the time of the birth of Jesus, saw a star appearing and left their homeland of Persia to come looking for Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus. They just knew that God had told them to do something. I'll say more about that in a moment. It may well have taken them more than two years or around about two years to get from where they were to where Jesus was by the time they reached it. Imagine for a moment that you are one of those wise men and you see the star and you know what it's connected to, where would you go to look for this king, this Messiah? Of course, you would go to the capital, Jerusalem. And when you got there, where would you go? If you were just using your own intellect and your own wisdom, of course, you would go to the king's palace. Where are kings born? But in king's palaces, And so you have this picture here of these wise men turning up at Herod's palace, saying, show us where the king is. We've come to worship him. Or we've come to pay him homage, if you're reading the Greek carefully. Traditionally, although not proven at all, uh, we have been told for many years that there were three wise men. There were probably more. We've no idea. I wonder if you know what their traditional names are. A little bit of a pub quiz, although you don't go to the pub Anybody any ideas? You can shout at me, I don't bite. Nobody know? Casper? Melchior? And somebody must know the third one. No? Balthazar. Their traditional names were those. Now, where did those names come from? I hope you enjoy these little bits on the side of what I'm trying to say to you. Well, you could say they come from nowhere, but actually, on Epiphany, the day that remembers the arrival of these wise men... In the early church, what they used to do was take a piece of chalk and they would carve or write above their doors C for Caspar, you think, M for Melchior, you think, and B for um, Balthazar, you think. Well, actually, what they were writing was shorthand in Latin for Christus Massionem Benedictat, which means Lord may your blessing rest on this house. And those three names were just names to remember the initials that went above the door. Like you would teach a child it's mnemonic about it's ABCs, Mrs. M, Mrs. I, Mrs. S, S, I, that type of thing. That's where it comes from. And in this story, we know that these wise men came looking for Jesus. They came looking for the Messiah. I wonder how many of us today, if we could have a prayer that said, Lord, Will you bless this house? Would say, I want to pray that prayer. I want to pray that prayer. I've prayed that prayer over every one of you in the last uh, four or five days going through my list of all who are part of our church family saying, Lord, bless this house. Bless this family. Bless this community. Bless this boy who's struggling. Bless this girl that needs your grace. Bless this marriage under threat. Bless these people as they try to work out how they're going to cope financially. What a beautiful prayer to pray. But these wise men let their wisdom not just lead them to the obvious place, not just to the room where they thought or assumed that a king would be born, not just to the palace. They went further. They were willing to follow this until they reached the Savior himself. The Bible tells us very clearly, by the way, that Jesus Christ is the font, the center of all wisdom. In John chapter one, he's described as the reason behind all things the one that makes everything fit together, the one that makes sense of life. In Proverbs chapter eight, there are illusions and allusions between Jesus and wisdom, although not as full as many people would think. This little baby born in this town, this village of Bethlehem, and by now here again back is somehow recognized by these wise men as the savior of the world. But if you read the story carefully, you will notice that they didn't stop where Herod wanted them to stop. They went beyond the obvious. The wise men did not tell Herod where Christ was when they found him. They were open to the leading of God through dreams and stars and visions. They went further than just what their intellect could tell them, just what their reason would work out. According to verse eight of Matthew chapter two, when told by Herod, they searched diligently. They took time and effort and put intellect and creativity and imagination into finding where Christ was. And three times in Matthew chapter two, in verse two and verse eight and verse 11, we read that they wanted to pay him homage or they wanted to worship him. Their wisdom went beyond what other people told them. Their wisdom was open to God speaking through dreams and revelation and ways that they hadn't experienced before. Their wisdom t- uh, caused them to search diligently. Their wisdom brought them to a place of worship, not just a place of intellectual assent. And their wisdom meant that when they saw him according to Matthew chapter 2 verse 10, they were overwhelmed with joy. That's the kind of wisdom I want. A wisdom that leads to joy, not a wisdom that just leads to knowledge. A wisdom that leads to worship, a wisdom that is open to God, interrupting my life, speaking to me in dreams and visions. Isn't that the wisdom that you want? And yet, all they had was a whisper. Those of you that were here on Christmas Eve will have heard Ethan Johnson bring a reading that I had given to him. It's one of my favorite readings and reflections over the Christmas period uh, written by a Danish theologian and philosopher called Soren Kierkegaard. Here is what it says. It's written from a, an excerpt of a book called Only a Rumour. Listen carefully because it's complicated, but it will help you. Although the scribes could explain where the Messiah should be born, they knew it from the Bible. They remained quite unperturbed in Jerusalem. They did not accompany the wise men to seek him. Similarly, we may know the whole of Christianity and yet make no movement. The power that moved heaven and earth leaves us completely unmoved. What a difference. The kings had only a rumor to go by, but it moved them to make the long journey. The scribes were much better informed, much better versed, but they sat and studied the scriptures like so many dawns, and it did not make them move. Who had the more truth? The three kings who followed a rumor or the scribes who remained sitting with their knowledge? What a vexation it must have been for the kings that the scribes who gave them the news that they wanted remained quiet in Jerusalem. We are being mocked, the kings might have thought, for indeed, what an atrocious self-contradiction that the scribes should have the knowledge and yet remain unmoved. This is as bad as if a person knows all about Christ and his teachings And his or her own life expresses the opposite. We are tempted to suppose that such a person wishes to fool us unless we admit that they are only fooling themselves. They followed a whisper. The hard thing for me to say to you is that all of you have probably got more knowledge than those scribes and Pharisees did in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So will it move you in 2019? Will you step toward the Christ? Not come to church and never miss a meeting, but will it change you? Will it cause you to journey, to sacrifice, to pursue, to go after him? I hope it does. Secondly, I want you to be aware as you embark on this year of the cost of following this King Jesus. Not only is this the time when we remember the wise men appearing to worship Jesus, the baby, it is also the time when we remember the slaughter of the innocents. Herod, gripped by fear about what could happen if this baby Jesus became king, ordered the murder from verse 18 of thousands of children who were baby boys in Jerusalem. Jesus would have been a rare thing. A child born in and around Bethlehem who was a boy who survived. Thousands of innocent lives taken all because greed and power and political manipulation felt threatened by the arrival of Jesus. King Herod reigned from 37 to 4 BC He was a horrible man. (laughs) He murdered his wife, three of his sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, and his uncle, as well as a generation of young boys in Judea. He wasn't Jewish. He was power-hungry, insecure, and a maniac. No matter what titles he had, he wasn't born with them. Herod was made a king by the Roman authorities. I wonder... Have you ever noticed Matthew chapter two, verse two? Could you go and read it again for me? It's profoundly theologically important, but we often rush past it. Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? Nobody is born a king. They become kings when their father dies. Or when somebody appoints them, not Jesus. From the moment of his birth, he was king. From the first breath that he breathed, he was king. Where is the child who is born king of the Jews? Now, there's a lot of complicated theological discussion about when Jesus realized that. It's not that I can't be bothered with it, but I don't want to go into it today. But from the moment this child appeared outside of his mother's womb, the world had their king. He was born a king, not with a king's garments, not with a king's crown, but with a king's identity and a king's purpose and a king's mission. No wonder Herod felt threatened. Because political power always feels threatened when King Jesus is in the room. When King Jesus is present, the hopeless are given hope, the poor are brought in, the excluded are welcomed, the lost are found, the hurt are healed, the sick are given something to cling to. This King Jesus is worth so much and so powerful and so strong that the strongest political power of its day would rather kill a generation than let him survive. So why would we expect that following Jesus Christ today would gain anything else other than attack and criticism? and being sidelined and marginalized. This power-hungry, insecure maniac couldn't cope with a king in his empire. And the power-hungry, crazy people around us who think that power rests with them can't cope with a king Jesus. Keep him in a manger. Keep him powerless. Keep him helpless. Keep him nice. Keep him um, candied and sanitized with Christmas cards, but don't let him be the king. But this day we remember that he is our king. He is our ruler. He is our authoritative head and our source. And he commands us and owns us and rules over us and loves us and embraces us and welcomes us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will not gain the approval of the world. You will never gain the approval of the political elite. You're never gonna be in the end crowd because you follow the true king and he is never in the end cried you will always be laughed at and mocked and marginalized but his rule topples everything and everyone else his rule is not the same as the world's rule his rule changes the rules His rule brings life, not death. His rule brings freedom, not imprisonment. His rule brings truth, not lies. His rule brings us to our senses. His rule brings us to being fully human and fully present in the world. And it comes at a cost. Thirdly, at the beginning of the year, can I ask you to bring your gifts to him? You will know the story well. In verse 11, they offer him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Presumably used to support the family in their flight to Egypt. To pay for everything that they needed to start again. A lot could be said about gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, speaking of wealth and material possessions. That which we have. Frankincense, speaking of the perfume that was used at the altar the only one that was approved of for use in the temple and in the tabernacle, at that place where sacrifices were made and offerings were made for sin. And myrrh mentioned in Genesis 37, 25, as a perfume that was used for the anointing of the dead. What would it mean for you to bring your gifts to him? I think it's quite fitting In the Christmas season, we remember all the gifts God has given us. But the last thing we do before we leave this season is remember the gifts that we can give him. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, our resources. The question everybody hates getting asked, and you mention it once in a year, and everybody says you never stop preaching about money. How's your tithing? in your bank balance where does god come under the gym to give him our gold is to give him of our material wealth to prioritize him and sacrifice for him that's what he asks his believers his followers to do what about frankincense what's the equivalent today perhaps it is to give him our worship and our prayer. Not just words sung on a sheet or on a screen, but from our heart. A deep sense of making room for God in our lives and reorientating ourselves around him. Could I invite you to the most thrilling adventure of your life in 2019? To trust God with your material wealth and to trust God with your worship, to talk to him in prayer, to open a dialogue with him that will take you to places that you never thought possible. And what of the mirror? I always find it difficult to try and work out what myrrh could symbolize here. But I think in the end, I come down to suggesting that it symbolizes our willingness to stand with Jesus in suffering and in death. To be committed to him no matter what. To offer him a trembling hand of faithfulness. So many of us are converted under a gospel of convenience. Come to God and he'll make you wealthy. What if coming to God means that you give him your wealth? Come to God and you will have everything you will ever need. You'll be self-sufficient. What if coming to God means that we give him the frankincense of our self-sufficiency? And say, actually, we live in dependence for the rest of our lives. Come to God and you'll never suffer again. What if coming to God means that we say we're willing to go through anything for you? It's actually the antithesis of much of the modern gospel, don't you think? So on this Epiphany Sunday, reflect. Reflect. Do you have a negotiated contract with God? I'll serve you as long as you're nice to me. I'll serve you as long as you do everything I want. I'll serve you as long as you make me happy and healthy and wealthy. That's not real conversion. We come to him because he is the source of life. And we lay our lives before him, giving him the gifts of an open heart. And open hands. I wonder how different Christmas could be if as we journeyed through it we remembered some of these darker sides of the story and suddenly we are confronted with a deeper stronger faith and a more profound reality that holds us when our life falls apart. That is present no matter what goes on in our lives and asks us to surrender our lives to him. The last thing I would ask you to consider is from the baptism story. As Jesus is baptized and emerges out of the water, we read in chapter three, verse 17, that he hears a voice, presumably related to Matthew or to others, that says, this is my son, the beloved. And what I want to invite you to do is alongside letting wisdom lead you to Christ, and being aware of the cost of following Jesus, and bringing your gifts to him today, I want to lastly ask you to acknowledge him, not as some kind of moral example, but as the son of God, in your obedience and in your response, and to listen for God's voice above all others in 2019. Not the voice of your boss, the voice of your husband, the voice of your wife, the voice of your children, the voice of your pastor, the voice of your elders, the voice of your professor. Not those voices, turn them down and listen for this voice above all other voices, the voice of God that speaks over his son. This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Now, allow yourself to take this theological journey with me for 30 seconds. When God looks at those who are redeemed in Jesus, the first thing that he sees is Jesus. And the words spoken over his son here are spoken over those who are in Christ. How can that not cause us to stand in our seats and raise our arms and shout hallelujah, even with a bad voice? He looks at you, and the first thing he sees is his son. And allow this to sink into your mind for 30 seconds. God loves you if you are in Christ with the same intensity, the same commitment, the same passion, and the same depth as he loves his son, Jesus Christ. I think most of us don't believe that. We think it couldn't be that true. It couldn't be that deep. That's how much he loves his people. And God's people said, amen, When you acknowledge him, you become part of his family and he acknowledges you. He speaks love and grace and life over you. So for the rest of 2019, oh, I don't like those sermons that say, it's gonna be a fantastic year, nothing's gonna go wrong. Not true. Just like 2018 was, it will be a year full of hills and valleys. There will be moments in this year where you think, what on earth is happening? Where is God in the midst of all of this? I'm not speaking doubt over you. I'm speaking honesty. And in those moments, what you need is not some kind of pat on the head sermon on the first Sunday of the year that'll give you a little pep talk. What you need is to know this. God is still God. Whether you live or die, God is God. Whether you are happy or sad, God is God. Whether your life falls apart or stays together, God is God. And he has revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why I want to invite you to offer your life as a sacrifice to Him today, on this first Sunday. 2018 is gone. You can't change a bit of it. And you can't change what will come your way in 2019. But you can position yourself so that you're strong enough to face it. You can stand in the grace and the mercy and the majesty and the mystery of Almighty God. What can I give Him? Poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what I have, I give you. Lord, I give my heart. Let's pray. As the band comes back, I want to give you a chance to respond to all that God might have said to you today. Some are frightened of 2019. Some are sitting here or listening online in a state of shock because of 2018. Some are excited and expectant about the year that lies ahead. But how you feel doesn't change who God is. Lord, would you appear And an epiphany to your people. Like the rising of the dawn. Like the sending of an army. Remind each of us of who you are. Come by the power of your spirit. And give us the resolve to put you first to keep you central, to follow you no matter what. We we admit our brokenness before you, our sadness at seeing our loved ones leave, our tiredness, Our uncertainty at being concerned for those that we love in our church. Our hearts break with those whose hearts are breaking today. And we would give anything for their situations to be different. We need you. In our frailty and insecurities and weakness, we need you. Help us. Help us to put you first. In Jesus' name. Amen.